Welcome back to Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts. We are your hosts, Eric Hart and Ashley Flowers. And this week we are sitting down with the amazing Sean McArdle. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So if you don't know Sean McArdle, he was the props master at the public theater for a few years and then a master props craftsperson at the Guthrie Theater. Is that yes. the correct? And um, quite a lot of effects on stage, including uh, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. You were the blood effects designer uh, yep. when that was on Broadway with Robin Williams. Currently in Minnesota, right? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm in the Twin Cities. Yes. Running your uh, company hero props. Yep. Uh, back to being self-employed, just in time <laughs> for the apocalypse. Right. Perfect, <laughs> Perfect timing. timing. <laughs> So yeah, let's just jump on in. Last week, we had Emer Murphy at the Abbey Theater on, and she mentioned how you had gone over to the Abbey with Sam Shepard, and that's how you introduced her to Spam. So how does a New York props master end up in Ireland with Sam Shepard? That's a very good question. Uh, so as you know, the public theater tends to be a nexus for a lot of different artists <laughs> in our industry. Yes. yes. And I was there for seven years, uh, and at the very end of my years there, I was ready to go. I was ready to go off and do other things. I was starting to explore a lot of different freelance opportunities, and I had an itch and to go uh, become self-employed. And before, about the time that was happening, we found out that Sam was going to be coming to the public, bringing the show from Ireland called Kicking a Dead Horse. And that told me, um, it kind of gave me a point in time when I was like, okay, I've, I'm ready to move on, but I am not leaving before I do that show. And, right. maybe, yeah. and by the time we got into it, I realized that the timing worked out well. When, it was, when the horse was ready to leave the building, so was I. Uh, because what I did on that show was I had to build a giant dead horse that had to do a lot of things during the show. But the big moment that Sam wanted to achieve in the show, and he was actually directing the show, uh, was that the horse had to disappear from the stage at the end of the play. Uh, <laughs> uh -huh. So this horse, which was life-sized um, and could be a whole podcast in and of itself about how we built that thing. Right. But we... Um, uh, the challenge that they hadn't been able to achieve in Ireland, uh, which where they had their own whole saga on how to make the thing that involved going to abattoirs and getting uh, oh, no. horses <laughs> that they actually taxidermied. <laughs> and the problem was the taxidermied horse looked like a taxidermied horse rather than yeah. a horse that just died because it was all stiff and it looked and its legs just stuck straight out. And at the end, there was a hole in the floor, but they, and the idea was that it was supposed to fall into the open grave, mm -hmm. but it, they couldn't get that part to work. They had to leave it attached. I figured out a way to make the whole darn thing work. Yes. And by making him be, he was remote controlled uh, and also mechanically controlled through wires from backstage. So at the end of the play, a couple of actuators went and released him and gravity just took him down into the hole and that was the part that sam always wanted so that became the goal and the first time in tech that i got that to work we didn't even have a horse hide on it yet 
but we teched it. The horse disappeared from the stage exactly the way it was he it was supposed to. And that was when Sam slapped me on the shoulder and he went, good work. You want to know what we're doing next? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really, really do. And yeah, uh, then we were, even though we were in the middle of tech, we took about five, 10 minutes of, to the stage management's uh, chagrin. And he explained to me that there was an effect in the next show with a ceiling fan right. that mm-hmm. had to get shot off the ceiling with a double barreled shotgun. And this show was already in pre-production at the Abbey simultaneous to when we were working on Kicking uh. a Dead Public. So the first thing I did freelance after I left the public was actually to go to London with Kicking a Dead Horse. And we did the show at the Almeida uh, up in, okay. in, in North London. You brought uh, the horse with you? We shipped it. We shipped (laughs) everything. They built the set, and then we shipped everything else, props and um, and the horse itself, and all special effects to London. And then I went over there, and for about a week and a half, and reinstalled the whole thing on a different stage. Um, That was tricky. One thing I was super duper proud of at the public is it had it never failed to fall in the hole, not once. Uh-huh. the most nerve-wracking show to watch in the world i was not allowed to watch it with my um assistant at the time desiree because i fidgeted the entire time because i was terrified the horse <laughs> would fall the, uh-huh. uh, the only time it didn't go in was because it, it got stuck in london because they didn't give them updated dimensions on the whole uh-huh. that's the only reason it didn't fall in so while we were there in london um we did a reading of ages of the moon and I ended up sitting in on this reading because the fan was integral to the middle of to the show in a way that if the fan didn't work, the show doesn't work. So mm-hmm. because basically mm-hmm. what it did is it just sped up and slowed down uh, in conjunction with the dialogue um, and it would speed up. And, and, and most of the dialogue was swearing at it about the fan not being um, not working mm-hmm. and halfway through. Um, Stephen Ray, who also was the guy who was in Kicking a Dead Horse, Stephen Ray gets up, runs inside the cabin because the cab, the set was basically just the deck, the the porch of a cabin, mm-hmm. and he ran inside, grabbed the double barreled shotgun, ran back out onto the porch, and shot the thing off the roof. Yes, so and it falls to the ground, doesn't it, while it's spinning? He would shoot it. And then there was a giant shower of sparks and then it fell to the ground. So I got done in London working on kicking a dead horse, went back to New York to my studio. We built the fan, which was actually still relatively prototypey by the time I took it over there. It worked, uh, but we didn't have any time to stress test it. But we, in about a month, threw together a fan that worked and then I managed to ship it into a case that weighed less than 50 pounds and flew it to Ireland uh, on Aer Lingus mm-hmm. and went to Ireland for three and a half weeks. And that was when I met Emer. Um, and so I just brought this thing over and I showed up with the, basically a fan in a, in a suitcase. <laughs> and next thing I know, I'm in rehearsal and we put the thing up in the rehearsal room and... Over the course of the two and a half weeks, we had to do some, we had, the challenges were that 
it worked. I just didn't, the mechanism that I had created to do the release needed more stress testing, which we then mm-hmm. got to do, of course. But what's mm-hmm. fun is when you're stress testing and trying to figure out how to troubleshoot in a foreign country, yes. that's the fun part. Because I needed to get all of these electronics uh, in order to repair it. And that was when I discovered that they have a company called Maplins that's like Radio Shack, only even better. Um, and oh, they still cool. have as far as I know. So I would yeah. I spent a lot of time at a Maplins in Dublin buying little uh-huh. electronics parts um and but that was when i was meeting emer so emer was handling every other prop in the show and then she was so grateful that i was there she's like oh, thank <laughs> God. because you have to handle all of the big crazy thing because so hand in hand with handling the technical aspects of the fan was also the fact that it was so integral to the performance of the play that i was in rehearsal more than almost any other play i'd ever been in oh wow, wow. yeah because if it made if it went if it didn't stop on a dime, the lines didn't work. So I had to sit there and be like, okay, mapping everything out with stage management to call the cues um, really um, specifically and then training people. And then in the middle of that, Sam really wanted there to be a smoke effect inside the fan. And who's going to say no to Sam? Now, pretty much true. He's like, I really want there to be a smoke effect in it. And we had actually hired a guy, um, named Shay Purcell, who was the, um, he's like a big pyro dude in Ireland. Like he's mm-hmm. the guy who does pyro before they do big football matches at the big O2 arena and stuff. Um, hmm. And uh, he came in, he was awesome. And he um, did the, um, the, fl- the, the spark effect. Mm-hmm. Um, that right. wasn't my part. That was just a com- mounted directly upstage of it. And when they said, Hey, do you want to do the smoke effect too? He said, no, I don't. And <laughs> I said, I'm up for a challenge. So I cobbled together a remote controlled smoke effect using uh, a remote controlled helicopter that I found at a uh, model airplane store and smoke bombs from a joke shop that I then cobbled together with some electric matches that they had left over from an old pyro project. And I'm, did this technique that Jim Guy taught me in grad school where we took, we hot glued little envelopes of flash paper and filled them up with the powder and mm-hmm. built a remote controlled smoke effect into the fan on the fly, completely not to any sort of code, but man, it looked cool <laughs> because it, we would trip it off. The fan was spinning at full speed before it dropped. And so when it falls to the floor, you got the smoke effect would start right at the top and then you would get this cool like spiral tornado of smoke as it hit the ground. Oh, really? Yes. Following it down. That's awesome. That's like, amazing. I, yeah. And I didn't realize things like I thought I was going to have to have it stop before I dropped it. And then I realized that actually the centrifugal force of it spinning actually helped keep it in one spot. So the thing would drop within like a 12 inch radius and it was mm-hmm. almost consistent every single time. And then we put a smoke effect in the floor too. So they had to, it had to land on top of it so that it would continue to smoke for a couple minutes. <laughs> that's amazing. But that's how I met Emer. And what was awesome. So the other part of it was working in Dublin was amazing because I got to go and figure out this whole crazy project with these amazing people. And then uh, just getting to hang out at the culture that is the Abbey theater was just so much fun because that <laughs> cliche about 
oh, we're going to go to the pub for lunch. And, oh, sure, we're going to have a pint. And we're like, oh, yeah, we totally did that. And it was great. <laughs> um, we got to Emer and um, and Brian, um, the set designer on the show, um, sat with me as we watched a uh, soccer match. Uh, no, rugby. It was Six Nations rugby. Uh, and got to watch uh, Ireland play England and have the two of them explain rugby to me <laughs> in the middle of a loud, raucous Irish pub. It was amazing. I had yeah. school for that whole trip. And then oh, we got to remount the show again like later the next year because they remounted it on the main stage. Oh, nice. Oh, and cool. then it came to New York and was at the Atlantic, so I worked on it there too. Oh, so you cool. just followed that show. <laughs> Yeah, no, I stuck with that one. I stuck with Sam uh, because then I also did his last show. Uh, they hired me to go over to Ireland to go to um, to do a play called uh, A Particle of Dread Oedipus Variations. But that's skipping ahead. That's a hero props thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the secret. You just attach yourself to a playwright who then needs you for every show they do. Yeah, if you can figure and, out how to make that lightning strike work again, it works great. Uh, yeah, if you're smart, the playwright will actually write in effects that only you can do. And so I have sort of like, had a conversation about that with Rajiv Joseph, who did Bengal Tiger. I'm like, please keep making bloody plays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I met Emer. Yeah. So you go from the public theater to the Abbey Theater, mm-hmm. and then also the Guffrey Theater. You're kind of hitting yep. like every world theater. I did. And then in the midst of all of that with the hero prop stuff, I mean, Bengal Tiger uh, at the Baghdad Zoo was also at CTG. So I ah. actually worked at, at CTG because we the first time we did it, it was at the Kirk Douglas. And then we did it at the Mark Taper the second time. And then the Broadway iteration was the third. Oh, okay. okay cool. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about Bengal Tiger. How did you end up on that? Uh, that actually ties back to the public because okay. we did a rather epic production of um, Macbeth uh, for Shakespeare in the Park mm-hmm. with uh, Liev, it was the year that Liev Schreiber was playing Macbeth and mm-hmm. Moises Kaufman was directing. And we were trying to engineer some very, very ambitious blood effects uh, in the middle of the park in tech. And you, Eric, mm-hmm. know exactly what that's like. Mm-hmm. Yes. When you're working at the Delacour in the middle of Central Park, you have to figure out a certain amount of time to get things because you are not in the most successful place on the planet, despite the fact that you are in the middle of New York City. Mm-hmm. And so there was a very ambitious effect for Banquo where he wanted him to start bleeding spontaneously and have a tableau of the ruffians stabbing like the air around him everybody facing straight downstage and then he would spontaneously start to bleed. Mm-hmm. And in addition to everything else, we just didn't have the in us to design an entire remote control rig. So mm-hmm. put blood bags in his um, giant blood bags inside his coat that he, and we, I, I convinced him to go to blackout so that he could pop them in blackout. And then <laughs> up, he was, he was lit and there were three blood bags and he consistently 75% of the time could only break two. Oh, it was the most oh. frustrating thing in the world. Oh. And, it, and, it, and right. it informed a lot of things that then happened after that because a couple of years later, Moises was directing Bengal Tiger. And so he asked me to do the blood effects for the show because the very first effect in the show is the tiger getting shot in the chest mm-hmm. and spontaneously starting to bleed. So yes. it was basically the same effect with a gun instead of a knife. And mm-hmm. so it was like, remember that thing we tried to do? Do you think you can do it? And I was like, all right. <laughs> so 
I threw together because uh, it was three. Bengal Tiger has three effects. There's a gunshot in the chest at the beginning. There's a magical realism dream sequence at the end of the first act where a woman basically just spontaneously bleeds out, and, um, the, and then a guy gets shot in the gut for the third effect. And uh-huh. I cobbled together using CO2 cartridges and some valves from some uh, paintball guns and Nalgene bottles, a blood rig that worked uh, and was run by a remote control that you could run for the little key fob and Mm -hmm. threw it together super duper fast and went to LA for exactly 48 hours. They didn't have any money because it was when it was at the Kirk Douglas, so they didn't have a Uh So yeah, and actually, you know that. So (laughs) I went out there and crashed at my college roommate's house because he happened to live in Culver City only a mile away from the theater and was there for 48 hours and we just blew through it the crew at the Kirk Douglas was awesome and just ran with this thing that I had just cobbled together from from scratch in a few weeks and it worked and then a year later they remounted it on the main stage and that time they actually had money so they put me up in a hotel downtown and I was there for a week and like yeah, it was fancy. I was like, suddenly I was like a fancy designer guy. <laughs> like, I'm bougie now. <laughs> Send for my car, please. <laughs> no, uh, the other car. Yeah. And so then we were there for a week and I redesigned them and it was still, I didn't have enough time to get them done the way that I really wanted to have them done. And we were running and ended up running into some tech issues where I was still having to build some stuff when I was in New York and sending it back to LA. But then when it came to New York, mm-hmm. I actually had already just moved to Minnesota because uh, I moved to Minnesota in 2010 because who knew that going freelance and self-employed in 2008 was going to happen right before the 2009 economic crash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot easier to move back here. Um, so, But I was in touch with what was going on and I was actually back in the city working for uh, mutual friends that, of many of ours, uh, Grady Barker and Megan Buchanan at Prey for Mache Monkey because they yes. had brought me back into the city to work on Peter and the Starcatcher. And uh-huh. while I was there, they did the meet and greet for Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And the Broadway producers were trying to get somebody else to do the blood effects because they wanted to do it cheaper than me. And because they were going to have to fly me back and forth and stuff and rent my equipment. And, um, but Moises really wanted me to do it. So I, showed up at, at his invitation showed up at the meet and greet where the press was and next thing you know i'm meeting robin williams and robin williams is like running over to me like oh you're the blood guy you're the blood guy and, I was like, <laughs> yeah. and then i was like well now don't hire me <laughs> yeah now i gotta hire you <laughs> yeah it kind of worked and i may have been standing between um moises and rajiv when we did the names around the group so it worked um <laughs> But I got to have the whole Broadway adventure. It was at the Richard Rogers Theater where Hamilton mm. is now. It was yeah. a good time. And uh, you got credited as a designer, right? I did. I And that was a whole thing that in our industry, it, especially when you get up to that level, I really tried to actually get uh, designer credit, official designer credit, but they wouldn't uh-huh. give it. I, I'm yeah. still on page eight. <laughs> but... Oh. Uh, but I got them to pay me, which actually, according to many people at the time, was the, the much larger accomplishment. No, that's great. Yeah. I, I also remember there was um you did a headshot effect in the Hamlet at the park. That was my first summer there. Um, the the David Corrin set all white. 
Yeah. Isn't it right at the end? Um, yeah. They just like was- shoot him and there's this big spatter of blood that just appears yeah. on this all white wall. Named Dieter who was there and he had, he had come out of grad school with a fair amount of like pressurized um, air experience. And so we did this really cool blood effect at the end of the show. Um, it was an interesting production of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember yes. in the rehearsal report that um, someone asked me, like, hey, you read this rehearsal report, right? What's this thing about the um, Horatio blood effect? And I oh, was no. like, oh, you know, at the end of the play, Fort Ross is going to have uh, Horatio executed. And the person said, really? I went, no, that's a crazy idea. Nobody would ever do that. And then Oscar Eustace said, hold my beer. That's exactly what he did. And yes. so at the very end of the show, Ford and Bross orders him murdered. And so we're at the Delacorte. And what we did, there, were, there was an upper platform uh, with I-beam supports. So we were able to build in a little blood cannon into the vertical support aimed uh-huh. at this big white wall. And the idea was, and, and, but we didn't, of course, like we never do, we never had time to tech that thing because it's, that's the biggest problem with blood effects is you never have time to tech it. Right. Mm-hmm. You got to figure out how to <laughs> never. everything before you go into that space that you can possibly think of because every uh-huh. tech time that a stage manager and a director will give you gets used. Um, every time. Every, every time. time. And then more. Um, it's so painful. Then when they don't work, it takes so much more time, and that's when it really hurts. Um, oh. But what happened on that day, and we it was the last day of tech, um, I, or maybe it may have been like the, one of the last pieces of tech before um, we went into the first preview. It was like a Saturday night or a Sunday night or something, but we were we were pinched, and I was right. fighting with Oscar to get time on stage to do it. And so we basically, we finally did a final tech of it in the full like final tech run of the scene we'll just see how it goes mm-hmm. <laughs> always a good idea not not nerve-wracking at all not oh, nerve-wracking. the worst thing to hear it was a sunday afternoon it was the final te- it was the final rehearsal before the first preview and right. we ran it and it got to the pe- to the piece and the gun went off and the, the gun was fine the gun part was fine the blood cannon's pressure was set about 10 times too high oh and no it sounded like a gunshot because the shockwave that came out the end of the thing was so powerful. It aerated the blood. And so you didn't even see it on the wall. And oh it, the shockwave rung the eye beam so loudly that it sounded like a gunshot. Oh, so, no. And I was, of course, the first person who understood, who realized what had happened. And I had to run out on stage and be like, everybody relax. Everybody <laughs> had literally just gone off because that's what it felt like. Mm. Um, and I was like, that's not what happened. It was the blood effect right over there. No one is in danger. A whole lot of people that weren't supposed to get blood on them got blood on them in tiny little flecks that were way up on the platform and way over oh. stage right got blood on them. <laughs> and then that night, um, we actually put, the, put it, the effect into the show that night and we did it and we dialed down the pressure. Oh, and it broke when we did it too. So oh, of course. <laughs> break. We fixed it over the dinner break and we didn't have a chance to test it and Oscar let me test it we let us do it that in the performance that evening and it worked mm-hmm. that was one of the more so what is what is the correct pressure what <laughs> that's when you think that's one of the things that i have discovered over the years is that like especially when yes. i was working on effects with um bengal tigers like when you're releasing the pressure from a co2 cartridge you're getting like 
anywhere from 500 to 750 psi of pressure out of one of those things and that's way way more than you need yeah um and so with the blood effects that i do now i never go above 100 to 110 psi yeah uh, because there are better ways to get the compression uh, mm-hmm. and there are and it's easier to control. And the higher the pressure, the more chances there are for points of failure. Mm-hmm. And right. it makes it safer for the actor, uh, if, if they're, especially if they're either in proximity to one or if um, it's on their person. And yeah, there's no reason to go with anything higher because one of the thing, one of the tricks that I figured out is using plastic membranes. Yes. So rather than just have it pop out the end of a piece of pvc tube if you put a plastic membrane if you can figure out how to suspend a plastic membrane that actually keeps the blood in place and so that pop it off it has to pop it the amount of pressure it takes to pop that plastic does everything that about that a much higher volume air pressure would do uh and it keeps it cleaner and um it's safer yeah it's more like you need the flow you uh, you don't need higher pressure you need like a certain pressure at a at a high enough flow all at once mm-hmm. yeah exactly um, yeah yeah that's what i I did uh garbage bags and i would just like push fit the pvc together so you could just swap it out when it breaks mm-hmm. it was great yeah yeah i always thought that hamlet headshot was where the bengal tiger effects came from no that one that was i mean definitely it was a step along the way right um, because what we learned about um, miniaturizing the air effects definitely. Uh, basically, we didn't, we weren't as limited on that effect because that effect could be plugged in. So it was 110 volts solenoid. Uh-huh. They yeah. could handle a whole lot more pressure, and, it did, and the size of the thing didn't matter because we could hide everything. Right. Whereas, like the stuff that I designed for Bengal Tiger was a tiny, like the battery, the the solenoid valve is like smaller than a C battery. And yeah, run, and runs at six volts, um, right? And so you can run them off a nine volt battery. Yeah. Oh, nice. And I know I've I've seen you you have that uh, little diagram of what you built, and I know I've seen that being passed around like all over the place. And I think uh, you sent it up to I think it was Ron DeMarco who then went to a, a plumbing store or something and got even more feedback on what kind of valves to use. They sort of like pulled from their inventory like how about this piece how about this piece (laughs) it's like one of these things it's like you built it and it's been passed around and used in so many shows like this is how you do it well yeah and i got pieces of it from other people like the remote control i got from doc manning who was kind of like he he was he was the prop engineering guy at actors theater louisville for years and he found yeah super cheap remote controlled um chipboard that ran off a little key fob that only cost about 30 bucks. And oh, I'm yeah. Those things, the Carl's Electronics, they still yep. sell them. They're yeah. cool. nice. I still use them. And I don't yeah. think I, the only time I've ever had one go bad is when I did a big mistake and like wired it backwards and exploded. A- <laughs> I did. I did that during class. I was demonstrating it because I got one of those. I'm like, now let me just hook it together. <laughs> like, it okay. Out. We're Watch not going to be watching remote control today. Sorry. Yeah, no. Just kidding. I went out by, by myself. It's only if I have an audience that I burn one of those things out. Yeah, yeah. Of course. It's like, uh, red. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Too late. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. And that reminded me, you were at Actors Theater Louisville for one of the Humanifests as I well. Did. That was super fun. I got to go, I got asked to be a prop designer uh, officially. Oh, um, oh wow. 
and got to go out there and do two shows during Humana in 2016, I think is when it was. I can't remember. I'm getting to that point where you're like, I don't remember what year that was. I could have to look it up. <laughs> right. um, but no, that, so I went out to Louisville for two months and I got to do two shows. Um, one was this wild new play by Greg Codis, who did Urine Town, um, that whose name I can't even remember because it was this long, complicated, silly name. Uh, but it was basically about um, zombies. No, vampires. They were vampires, but only kinda. It was that they were vampires. But they were really grail knights who learned during the Crusades that if they became cannibals, that gave them immortality. Ah, of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was that play. Naturally. Um, the other one was one that I still tell everybody about because I think everybody should see it or produce it because I think it's friggin' amazing. It's called How We Got On by Idris Goodwin. And it's this wonderful little small cast play for actors. And it's about the history of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a central character, uh, narrator that's a DJ called the collector who does bits, narrative bits during the entire show from her DJ booth and explains, literally does a history of hip hop. And then the play is about three young people of color growing up in a generic Midwestern town, learning about hip hop from Yo! MTV Raps in 1988. Nice. It's such a great show. And between the two things, like little old blue haired ladies walk out of the play and are like, oh, I understand hip hop now. <laughs> awesome. It's such That's a- That's amazing. It's so great. I was like literally making diagrams of crossfaders and Akai mixers uh, for a flip chart. Uh, <laughs> And I got to dress the DJ booth and make it period um, accurate. So there was no vinyl on the stage that wasn't, that was uh, newer than 1988. So I got to hit every vinyl shop in Louisville looking for uh, vintage hip hop vinyl. Oh, that's amazing. It was one of the best shopping trips I ever got to do. It was so much fun. And oh my God, I wish I had that collection. Oh, right. Send it to me. That would be great. Mark Walston, if you're listening to this, can you send me that uh, collection? That'd be great. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And I got to work with Wendy Goldberg, uh, who directed that show, who did an amazing job. And she, I got to work with her later at the Guthrie. She was the one who directed Indecent, um, who, which was the second production of Indecent after the Broadway production and had the same music director and had a lot of the same cast. But Rather than a small bare um, spare space that they did the original show in in New York, we got we had we did it at the main stage of the Guthrie and built a gigantic theater, uh, decrepit antique theater. We pulled seats out of a an old um, I think it was an old Masonic lodge, uh, and and Wendy did just fantastic job. She's one of those directors you're like, oh yeah, I want to work with Wendy Goldberg. She runs the O'Neill Theater Center um, in Connecticut. And freelance is all, and she's a director in regional theater all over the place. She's the best. Yeah, she's, she is, she, yeah, she's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah, we did um, Indecent at Yale. It was, oh, such a good show. I know, right? Oh, I'm obsessed. It was so fun because I got to work on it there. And then afterwards, you know, see it go to Broadway and then 
last year they did it at CTG. And so I got to go see it there. And I was like, oh, this is so crazy. Just watching it again after all these years. Yeah, it's so good. So you got to see it born. Yeah. It, oh, it was so much fun. Cool. That's amazing. I love getting to watch amazing plays like that be born. Yeah. Was- and it was so crazy too, because I think that was the first time that I had watched a show that I was a part of the world premiere of. Mm-hmm. And then watching it going, oh, I remember making that. I remember making that. Oh, I remember this being a problem. Oh, I remember this having like so many conversations of this. And just like going through the show, just watching it in that perspective. It was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Carolina change. And when I was with the public, whoo, I could tell you stories. <laughs> through some iterations <laughs> on all levels. Like people are like, oh, I love the soundtrack. I'm like, yeah, you should have heard it at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see that with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which incidentally took your dead horse and chopped it up and hung it in the uh, over the audience in the Bernie yeah. Jacobs Theater. Oh, and that no. was basically, that yeah. was how the horse died. I remember when Megan called me up and said, uh, I don't really need to ask your permission to do this because the public owns the horse, but uh, I need you to be emotionally okay with it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. That's a lot to unpack. Okay. <laughs> like, this is sit the down. horse that you're not going to run into. La, 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 la. Oh, my God. I can't believe you're cutting my horse in half. <laughs> right. we, made two. we made two of those horses. So it wasn't so bad. Uh, okay. We made so a there's rehearsal. still one around. I don't actually know. Uh, I keep next. I, I keep, I actually was in New York in December and meant to find. I was actually went looking for Ruth Sternberg to say, hey, do you still have that horse? Uh, <laughs> But uh, I never did find her. I guess I could just message her. But actually, <laughs> right. he knows where it is. Izzy Figueroa knows where it is. But he knows where all the money <laughs> are buried. Well, we're running out of time. But don't worry. We're going to have Sean on our next episode next week to talk all about his freelance work and his company, Hero Props. So please tune in then. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Silk Mache and email us with any questions or ideas at propspodcast at gmail.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and check out our website at silkflowersandpapermachehearts.com, where you can find all of our old episodes. This has been another episode of Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts with your hosts, Eric Hart and Ashley Flowers. We'll see you next week. <laughs>